that. For the rest of us, why don't we open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who may be with us for the first time, we've been journeying through Mark since September, and uh, we're finishing up chapter 5 this morning. And while you're turning there, just a a major thank you for all your prayers and concern for me um, this week. A lot of you were asking how I'm feeling Uh, I'm doing much better. I came down with something Wednesday, and it took me out all the way through Thursday. Friday, I came into the office and thought, oh, I'll finish my sermon, and worked here for about two hours and decided, nope, it's time to go back to bed. Um, But uh, I was burning the midnight oil yesterday, but we're ready. Uh, And um, when we are weak, we are strong, right? Uh, So Mark 5, we're looking at verses 21 through verse 43 this morning. Uh, And I encourage you to follow along in your copy of Scripture and keep it open throughout the sermon just to to track with this wonderful story. Um, But this is the Word of God, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, He fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, 
little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful story. Uh, Lord, we pray as we look at it that the desperation that we may be feeling in our own lives, we would be led to bring to the feet of Jesus. Uh, Help us to see him clearly this morning through this account of his life and his power. We pray that the Spirit would be our teacher as we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I've really come to a renewed appreciation for this story that I've read I don't know how many times, but it really is amazing all the details of what is going on in this account. It's almost hard to believe that this story is true, and yet we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is true. Uh, Mark is doing so many amazing things in comparing and contrasting the people and the details of this story. Uh, On the one hand, you have a dying girl who is aged 12 years, and on the other, you have a suffering woman who has suffered for 12 years. Uh, You have a man of high esteem, highly regarded in his community who has it all, and yet in all that he has, it's not enough to save his dying daughter. On the other hand, you have a woman of low esteem, ostracized from her community, who has spent it all. And still, all that she has spent couldn't deliver her from her suffering. Two people, one man, one woman, from totally different circumstances, but one unifying experience that they are having, absolute desperation. And their desperation brings them to the feet of Jesus. But what Mark is really doing uh, beyond this, this text is he's showing us this man and he's showing us this woman, one from high regard, one from low esteem, and then he's pointing at us, the reader, and saying, no matter where you fall between these two, in your moments of desperation, will you fly to the feet of Jesus? Will your faith bring you in your desperation to the feet of Jesus? And when you do bring your desperation before him, what can you expect from him when you go to him? Now, the story begins this morning with a man named Jairus. Take a look at verse 22. We're introduced to this man. Jesus, at this point, he's gotten out of the boat from being over in the country of the Gerasenes. A crowd gathers around, and suddenly, pushing through this massive crowd is this man named Jairus. And to our shock, we discover in verse 22, he is one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, how strange this must have been for the entire uh, crowd looking on, because we know that people that were the rulers within the synagogue were not necessarily the friendly folks towards Jesus. He had been, they had been antagonistic to him, the scribes, the Pharisees, those who ruled in the synagogue. Uh, We know, though, why he is coming to Jesus. He's falling before Jesus. In verse 23, he's imploring, saying to him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. 
we learn from Luke's account of this story that this is Jairus' only child, the darling treasure of his heart. Now, if this man Jairus could write a letter to us at Grace Church at Willow Valley, this is how the letter might go. He might write something like this. Grace Church, my name is Jairus. I was a ruler of the synagogue, a man well esteemed in my community of faith. I was a man everyone looked up to, a keeper of the sacred texts, an administrator of synagogue worship, the man that everyone trusted to supply sound teachers of God's truth. I was paid well for my work, and in many ways, I had it all. But there was one thing, the most precious thing to me, that I was about to lose, my 12-year-old daughter. In my desperation, there was only one place, one person I knew I could go to, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus and I did not depart on the greatest terms the last time we'd met. He had healed a man with a disability in my synagogue back on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees were furious with him, so furious they sought a way to off him. Now, I knew that if I was to keep my reputation as a ruler of the synagogue, I would have to distance myself from this man, Jesus. But now that I was about to lose my only child, what would all that prestige, all that esteem mean without her? And so, not quite sure what it would all mean, and even if it was a good idea, I went and I sought Jesus. One last desperate attempt to save my little girl. Surely, Jairus had to wonder if Jesus would help him. The circles in which he walked weren't necessarily on Jesus' nice list. They were more on his naughty list. The scribes, the Pharisees, those that would have supported him in his ministry. And yet, what does Jesus do? Uh, Mark just tells us in verse 24, straightforwardly, take a look. He went with him. No hesitation. No questions of clarification. No, well, if you get your act together and stop hanging out with those kind of people, Jairus, then I might help you. Just goes. For Jesus, what he sees in Jairus is a man with desperate faith, believing that Jesus has the power to heal his little girl, and he goes to Jairus's house. What we see from this text, first of all, is Jesus blesses desperate faith. Jesus blesses desperate faith. Now, there is a problem that immediately arises in this story. Take a look at verse 24. In verse 24, just as they're about to set off to Jairus' house, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So here they are. It's kind of a time-sensitive thing. His, his daughter is about to die, and all these people, all they want to see is the show. They just want to see Jesus save the day. And rather than being helpful, they're actually slowing the process down. I mean, you can imagine if you were riding in an ambulance with your loved one who is about to die and you needed to get to the hospital, how nervous and panicked you would be as you're looking out the windshield of the ambulance and rather than seeing the cars pull over for you, people are actually getting more traffic surrounded around you, slowing your way down to the hospital rather than getting out of your way. You'd be frustrated, you'd be angry, you'd be panicked. Imagine how Jairus is feeling. And so 
Off they go, slowly making their way towards Jairus' house to save this little lady of 12 years old. But little could they have known that behind the scenes in that crowd, there is a woman who'd been suffering for 12 years who is making her way to Jesus herself. We're introduced to this poor woman in verse 24. Take a look at her there. We read that there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we're not absolutely sure what's going on. We can be sure that it was some sort of gynecological abnormality. One of the commentaries I read was this is no ordinary flow of blood. This is a hemorrhaging um, going on. This is massive amounts of blood that this woman suffers uh, losing. And this has been going on for 12 years. Terrible physical suffering. She's not only suffering physically, Mark tells us she's also suffering financially. Take a look at verse 26. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. The remedies that the Jewish community had for women who suffered this issue were horrific, humiliating, degrading remedies, fraught with superstition. In my research this week, I learned that the Jewish Talmud taught that women should, who suffered in this way should drink a, a strange concoction with wine, and as they're drinking it, the priest would yell at them, cease from thy flocks. That was supposed to heal her. And if that didn't work, they had another remedy. Set her on a fork in the road and put a glass of wine in her right hand. I don't know what the significance of the right hand. Better not be your left hand. Got to be your right hand. I don't know what's going on there. But have her with her right hand, and when, when she's least expecting it, have someone come up behind her and scare her by screaming the same thing, cease from thy flocks. Another remedy was that women like this should carry around digested corn from the manure of a donkey. So this poor woman, she is spending her money putting her faith in these humiliating, debasing things. And it's not making her better, it's making her worse. For 12 years, physical, financial, but also emotional and spiritual suffering. We know from the law, Leviticus 15, Uh, It says that if a woman, this was the law for Israel, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, all the days of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. Every bed on which she lies, everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. You shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. So if this woman has a husband, he's been out of the picture for a long time, no interaction with her children if she has any. She can't even go to the synagogue to experience worship with her community of faith. She has suffered in every possible way imaginable. But the turning point comes in verse 27. Take a look at verse 27. In verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus. 
At some point, the news about the prophet who was in town, the great man who everyone is saying is the Messiah, the great man who even claims that he is the Son of God, the great man who is doing these miraculous healings for people who are blind and lame, and this might be her hope. And so she starts listening to these reports about Jesus. How many lives have been changed because people start listening to the reports about Jesus? How many times have you been asked by people in desperate circumstances about your faith and the hope that it gives you, or they come to you and ask you for prayer because they know and they have heard that when Jesus gets involved with things, things change. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Now, her faith is simple. It's not rock solid. In fact, it's maybe even a little superstitious. Take a look at verse 28. Uh, She went behind him, touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Uh, Back in the ancient world, uh, people used to think when great rulers would walk down the street or people of, you know, prestige, people used to think if you could just be near them or even sort of touch them, that maybe their aura would rub off on you, almost like kind of a good luck charm. That was their their superstitious thinking back in the day. Most likely, that's what she thought with Jesus. So her understanding of who he is and, and how she can get healing from him isn't that well informed, but she has a mustard seed faith. And what do we know about mustard seed faith from back in chapter four of Mark? Jesus will bless mustard seed faith. Well, is her mustard seed faith enough to heal? Take a look at verse uh, 29. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, Jesus, in verse 30, he knows that this has happened. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, He knows that this has taken place. There's a whole crowd of people around him, and yet he knows this woman has come. She has touched him, and she has touched him uh, in order to get healing. And he knows that he has given healing to her. And yet, what does he do? He does this strange thing. He turned about in the crowd, verse 30 says, and he says, probably at the top of his lungs, who touched my garments? So now here we are. He stopped dead in his tracks. Can you imagine what Jairus is thinking at this point? Jesus, we got to keep moving. We got to go. My daughter is going to die. Don't stop. We need to go. His disciples are completely confused. Take a look at verse 31. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Jesus, there's been at least probably 20 people have grazed you, pressed into you, bumped into you in this entire journey to this guy's house, and you're asking who touched you? But Jesus is looking for the touch of faith. In fact, I love verse 32. The translation doesn't quite get the Greek, uh, but in verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. The Greek really is, he kept intentionally looking. He wasn't going to move on until she brought herself forward. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he stop? Why would he want to know? I mean, after all, she got her healing. So what's the big deal? We're in kind of a time crunch. Let's just get to Jairus' house. 
Well, that's the second point. Jesus prioritizes personal relationship. In verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus is not content with transactional encounters. What he wants is relationship. He wants this dear woman to get real with him, to bring herself to him, to be able to look into her eyes, to hear her story. And so she does. She tells the whole story. She tells the whole truth. I love one of the uh, quotes from the commentaries this week that I looked at. James Edwards says, the persistence of Jesus in discovering who touched him rivals the woman's persistence in reaching Jesus. She wants a cure, however, a something, whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter with someone. He is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. And then he goes on, in the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. I love in verse 34, in verse 34, we get a glimpse of the sweetness of personal fellowship with Jesus. He speaks to this woman after she's told her story. He says to her, he starts out by imparting affection to her. Verse 34, he calls her daughter. Back then, to, to call someone daughter would be um, akin to like an older man calling a younger man son or an older person calling a younger person sweetheart or hun bun or whatever. He wants her to know you're not an outcast. You're someone worthy of affection. He gives her affection. He gives her direction. He tells her, your faith has made you well. Not the superstition that you may have come to me with, not all the other remedies you have sought saved you. Your faith in me and my power is what has saved you. He is the wonderful counselor. And then he gives her benediction. Go in peace, he says, and be healed of your disease. I think if this woman could write a letter to us, what might her letter say? Her letter might say, Grace Church, I figured this Jesus was too busy and important for an unclean, outcast woman like me. I thought it best not to bother him, and so I tried to get healing the least intrusive way as possible. But to my utter surprise, he wanted to do more than heal me. He wanted to know me. He was interested in my heart. He wanted to hear my story. I didn't find out until later that Jesus was on an appointment to save someone else that day. Someone in a far more dire situation than mine, very time sensitive. But how could I have known? In that moment, even though a huge crowd surrounded us, I was the center of his attention, his full priority. I felt like I was the center of his world. 
Friends, do you know what it is like to really meet with Jesus? Not just transactional prayers here and there. Lord, give me this. Lord, I need that. Lord, be with this person. Lord, do this. Not just reading the Bible to tick the the mark in your Bible reading plan, but really meeting with him. Where you come before him. He speaks with you in ways unutterable. I love an old hymn called In the Secret of His Presence. It really gets, I think, at the heart of what it is, that wonderful fellowship that we can enjoy with the Lord Jesus. I just want to read the lyrics to you. It goes, in the secret of his presence, how my soul delights to hide. Oh, how precious are the lessons which I learn at Jesus' side. Earthly cares forever vex me when my trials lay me low. But when Satan comes to tempt me to the secret place, I go. When my soul is faint and thirsty, neath the shadow of your wings, there is cool and pleasant shelter and a fresh and crystal spring. And my Savior rests beside me as we hold communion sweet. If I tried, I could not utter what he says when thus we meet. Only this I know. I tell him all my doubts, my griefs and fears. Oh, how patiently he listens and my sorrowed soul he cheers. Do you think he ne'er reproves me? What a false friend he would be if he never told me of the sin which he must see. Would you like to know the sweetness of the secret of the Lord? Go and hide beneath his shadow. This shall then be your reward. Whenever you leave the silence of that happy meeting place, you will surely bear the image of the master in your face. You know what it is to meet with Jesus like the woman met with him? Not a transactional relationship, but for you to be his priority in that secret meeting place. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Well, this sweet moment gets interrupted in the story in verse 35. Take a look at verse 35. While he was still speaking... There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Uh, The crushing news that Jairus was dreading. I just wonder at this point, is Jairus angry? Is Jairus said, why did we stop? Why did all these people gather around us? Why did you have to have this conversation with this woman? There could have been hope and now she's dead. Now all my hope and everything that I was hoping in is gone. She's dead. She's gone. Well, the next thing that Jesus does, Jesus gives hope in hopelessness and life in death. I love what Jesus does in verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. We used to have a saying um, uh, on the elder team, Alec Millen would tell us, you know, when, when we, you know, there was negative talk going on or uh, talk that wasn't of faith, but we were more thinking with the mind of the flesh, he would say, guys, we need to change the conversation, change the conversation, change the conversation around things of hope and faith and, and, and hoping against hope. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He changes the conversation from despair to hope hopelessness to joy. 
He wants Jairus and he wants us to expect the impossible from him, to believe, to be strong in faith, to hope against hope. In fact, he has so much hope that Jesus dismisses the mourners when he gets to Jairus' house. Let's take a look at verse 38. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Just like in today's world, when we lose a loved one, we contact the funeral home, and they start making arrangements for us. They may even come to, to get the body. Uh, back in Jesus' day, what you would have done is you would have contacted professional mourners. They would have come to your house, and they would have weeped and wailed and thrown a fit and let everyone know in your community someone has died. So you can imagine Jesus is essentially telling the funeral home that his, at Jairus' house, hey, we don't need the casket. We don't need the body bag. Go back home. You're, 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 not, you're not present. You're not needed here. She's not dead. And what did they do? They laughed at him. Friends, aren't we so much like Jairus' friends who came and spoke to Jairus? When things are looking down, when we experience personal loss, when, when it seems like everything is low, we, we look at our culture, uh, maybe there's personal loss in our lives, we look at uh, the world around us and the despair and devastation, are we tempted to say, oh, why bother? Uh, don't bother the teacher with it anymore. All hope is gone. All hope is lost. Or even worse, when people start speaking in hopeful ways, start speaking words of faith, we, like the mourners, just laugh. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be fantastic if, if Jesus really was the ruler and the reigner and was sovereign over all things and that there was hope? Friends, we need to hear the words of Jesus when he says, do not fear, only believe. How different our entire worldview would be if we really believed that Jesus gives hope in the midst of hopelessness and that he is able to bring life in death. With him, there is always hope. So we come to the great crescendo. He gets into the house, verse 40. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So there she is, this precious girl. She is dead at this point. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. <laughs> In verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking. Now, I, we have heard accounts of people who have been pronounced dead and then have been revived. Those people do not get up out of their hospital beds right away. It's going to be weeks and weeks before those folks get up and are able to move around. This healing, this resurrection power of Jesus is so great that this girl just gets up out of the bed and she goes about doing her 12-year-old thing. She's strolling around. Full life, full energy has been brought back. And I love verse, the end of verse 42. What did all the folks, how did they respond? They were immediately overcome with amazement. The resurrection power 
of Jesus. And ultimately, what this account is pointing us forward to is another resurrection that would take place, just as miraculous, that would leave people astonished and filled with amazement just as these folks were. It's going to take us a million years to get there, but we're going to fast forward this morning. Take a look at Mark 16. Mark 16. This passage is just a foreshadow of this greater resurrection. Mark 16, starting in verse 4. records, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Does that sound familiar? Do not fear, only believe. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Then look down at verse 9. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and what? Astonishment had seized them. The same word that's used in our passage this morning. Overcome with amazement. Friends, we get wrapped up into this story of this little girl, the story of Jesus' resurrection power. We have entered into that story in the Lord Jesus Christ because ultimately what Jesus would do and what this passage is pointing us forward to is that Jesus would share in death with us. He would lay his life down and taste death so that we might not have to. He would willingly respond to our desperation, saving us from that which we couldn't save ourselves from, that which no amount of money, no amount of esteem, no amount of reputation could ever deliver us from. He would take on our uncleannesses that left us outcasts, left us uh, unable to be in the presence of the Lord. He would take those uncleannesses on himself in the cross so that we might be made clean in God's eyes and he too would rise from the dead with resurrection power so that we might have salvation. How is that salvation received? Not by being a good person like Jairus was, nor by some fancy supernatural, uh, superstitious stuff like this woman was trusting in, but by falling at the feet of Jesus in faith and asking, Lord, save me, faith alone. And Jesus, in his grace, responds. He takes us unclean outcasts, and he enters into personal relationship with us. We have been wrapped up into his story of resurrection. And we have the ultimate hope that our story as Christians, the final note of our history, of our life story, of all eternity, is not one of tragedy, it's not one of despair and gloom, but one of hope and life because we know the end of the story. There is going to be a final great resurrection day, not seen by just a few people in a small house, 
but by all eyes. In Revelation 21, we're told, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. It won't be part of the story anymore. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the tomb is empty and Christ is risen. This morning in faith, you can bring your desperation to Jesus. When you come to him, you are not a bother to him. You are not insignificant. You are precious to him. He will meet with you. He longs to have your heart. And when all around us seems hopeless, when it seems like despair is the, the ruling narrative of our world and of our lives, we hear the words of Jesus, do not fear, only believe. He gives hope and hopelessness. He imparts life and death. He is a good savior. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for me to pray because <clears throat> I know some of the stories of the people in our congregation and the suffering that they are enduring. I'm just thankful that this story is true. I'm thankful that we have been caught up in your story and that we don't have to cling to despair because you bring hope and hopelessness and you have resurrection power. You've told us the end. We hold out hope. Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we try to relate to you so coldly and detached when what you want from us is personal fellowship, real relationship. So we want to come to you to receive that affection, that direction, that benediction. We want to live with a mindset of faith, not of despair. We don't want to laugh at your truth. We don't want to roll our eyes at uh, what you tell us is the ultimate truth. And so we cling to you, we ask that we would know what it is to bring our desperation to you, and that we would always fly to you in our moments of greatest need. Lord, teach us to be like Jairus, teach us to be like this woman, no matter how small our faith is, that we would come to you to receive your goodness. We thank you that you are awesome and that you're coming again to make all things new. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.